But um, I thought the way that we get started, just as we think about, you know, the different pillars of the church, as was laid out in the conference, uh, we have the church's theology, which is doctrine of God, uh, the church's anthropology, which we just heard um, from, from, from Francisco, uh, the church's bibliology, okay, what the church thinks about the Bible was another pillar that Brian um, spoke on yesterday. And then after this session, we have Bobby, who's going to be preaching on uh, the church's Christology. Is that right? No. Ecclesiology. Okay, for, forgive me. Is that, is that um, I, I was involved in preparing for this conference, but that was a long time ago. So, and then, and then Sunday morning is going to be the church's, okay, Christ and the Gospel. So looking more at Christology on Sunday morning. Um, as I was thinking about how to begin, you know, asking questions to these guys, um, if I was to add another pillar um, to this conference, another pillar of the church that I think is important for us to think about, um, I think that, you know, something focused on the mission of the church uh, would be maybe a helpful pillar if we had another, you know, session to be able to to preach on. And I think that this is a topic that um, there is some confusion about um, in our day within Protestant Christianity. And so let's just get the conversation started off just by a general question. And really, each of you have kind of touched on it as you've delivered your sermons. But how would you define the mission of the church? How would you how would you define it? Uh, that, that's probably the the, the the best first question. Does anyone want to take that as a as a first go? I'll just make a quick stab, and then please just yeah. This one's working. Is it working? There you go. Uh, I I I think that honestly that that little book that's out there, "What Is the Mission of the Church" by Gilbert and DeYoung, was always helpful and just making disciples, and and how do you make disciples? Well, I think go back to what Brian preached on last night and the transformative power of the Word, that they would believe what Francisco preached on a moment ago because it came from the Word, and that you make disciples. So discipleship making, kind of a central idea of, of what the mission of the church would be. Would you all have anything you all want to add to that? Amen. Amen from Bobby. Okay. Do y'all, would y'all agree with my uh, kind of what I'm maybe picking up on? Maybe, maybe you're like, no, I don't think that's a real thing. But do y'all think that there is some confusion, some confusion within certain sectors of, of Protestantism that seem to be struggling with defining that question? I know just for example, um, Nine Marks, their most recent journal, really focused on this issue um, relating to some of the political issues that are going on in our day. And um, they pretty much diagnosed it as a mission of the church problem that um, that many Christians are beginning to be confused about what the purpose of the church would be and they're starting to you know bring in um, a lot of other uh, topics as they as they think about that so um, an important you know think about the Great Commission right uh, it's like what are those things that churches are talking about where it's diverted from the mission of proclaiming the word making disciples yeah well, and, and even as I think about, you know, Francisco's sermon, um, he was, you know, making, drawing out the, the creation mandate, you know, the dominion mandate to multiply, fill the earth, um, exercise dominion, subdue um, God's creation, so to speak, that um, I think that's obviously, that's a biblical idea, that that's true for all humanity, that all humanity has a responsibility to do that. And, and so is there a distinction between the church's mission, maybe is another way to ask it, and the dominion mandate given in Genesis chapter, chapter two. What do you think about that, Francisco? Okay, well, the, I, I think in the most basic 
form, when you're thinking about the dominion mandate, particularly as stipulated in Genesis, I believe it speaks more of a stewardship. Um, understanding that God created uh, everything that he created uh, for his glory and for man, I see it more as a stewardship uh, of God's creation. And, and I think we could very easily get into trouble when you say, well, if st stewardship means more than just making sure that we use the resources appropriately, making sure, you know, but stewardship goes into um, whatever other branch comes off of off of that, I again call me a, a simpleton or um, not well read. But I think anytime you take a, the dominion mandate and splinter it to mean let's make every nation on the planet a Christian nation, mm -hmm. I think there's a too too much of a leap. I think is 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 adding uh, to it outside of just uh, we are called to. Uh, be fruitful and multiply, um, fill the earth with more image bearers, and uh, ensuring that they know why they're here, where they came from, and whether, what is their purpose, which is to glorify God ultimately. Mm -hmm. So the question is, how is it do I glorify God? Well, I glorify God in the way he made me, in being, you know, being part of a church and making sure that, I'm in part, that I understand the, the purpose of the church is to make this make jesus followers yeah. of those within our own own sphere right. so i i think that's just the simplest way i can i can put it and again just to summarize i think we can run into trouble when we make the dominion mandate to to rule and subdue the earth more than just stewardship yeah yeah i think that's helpful brian do you have something you want to add to that um i think i would agree with everything that my brothers have said. I think maybe rephrasing it a bit might help. I think that the mission of the church is what Francisco just said. It's no different than the individual mission. That's to glorify God. I think the means by which we do that is disciple making. I think if that may sound like splitting hairs, but I think if you confuse those two things, man can become the central focus of everything that we do and that's where we get into problems because if man is central instead of the glory of god and man is subservient even disciple making to that overarching goal uh, it's putting the cart before the horse sometimes i believe that leads to pragmatism um, it can even lead to things like you're referring to with uh, things in the christian nationalism debate uh, where uh, certain types of man doing this rather than God and his glory. And his, he is glorified when we, as Francisco so well said in his session, obey him. Yeah, I think that's, that's really helpful. And, and, you know, one thing that, as Francisco was preaching, maybe on this topic, and there's actually a few questions here, one of them, uh, what is the best argument between separation of church and state? Uh, so that's, that's I think, a, a good question. I actually think it touches on this. You know, if you think about the dominion mandate given to all humanity by God, whenever his creatures engage in that work, um, who are they partnering with to do that? Well, they're partnering with, with other humans to do that. They're, they're, they're subduing the earth with other humans. Um, and, and, and the church exists. Who do we partner with to, to accomplish our work? Well, we're partnering with the church. We're partnering with other Christians to accomplish our work. We're not blurring that distinction. 
And so I think that that, you know, as you, as you think about that and as you try to apply that and work that out, it, it makes sense that um, as you live in the world and, you know, as you engage um, on, on matters political, things related to the state, um, we are, I think, called to, uh, called to partner with, so to speak, even unbelievers in that task, to do a good job ordering a just society, all those things. Uh, but that's distinct from what the church is trying to do, and the church is truly focused on making disciples. So I do think that you can look at, you know, the purpose, like what you said, Francisco, about how things were created, why God created them, and then how they, how they work themselves out, um, that you can see that's, you know, some kind of separation that, of course, has to be defined um, can, can be defensible there, I think. Any other comments on that question or uh, the best argument between separation between church and state? Just a thought. I mean, going back to, you know, I don't know, going back to, to Romans 13 yeah. and, and our submission in a certain way, and, and then again going the church is, or the state is not the church. There's unbelievers in the state. Uh, and, and, and again, this is not, not outside of God's plan. Everything hasn't unwound because the, the state is not all Christian. Uh, you know, the, so on one side, there's this submission that takes place. And, 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 but on the other side of that is, again, there's a separation, whereas if the state tells me to do something that's unbiblical and Christian, right. I can't do that. Uh, and, and thinking biblically about what you have in Scripture to be able to make those decisions and to discern that outcome, uh, you know, and that, as long as there's unbelievers in the state, you're going to continue to, to go down that path. And again, I just think that's, that's, that's what Paul was talking to Christians about in his day. And that's what he was, that was the things he was identifying that they were having to wrestle with and deal with as, as they saw the state responding to them in different ways, clearly ways that were very uh, much persecuting them to, to death. I mean, he, he helps you think through that scripturally. Yeah, I think about, um, you know, Paul, is it Rome, I think it's Romans 13, where he talks about, you know, that, that he defines a civil magistrate and says that they are ministers, okay, to punish evil and to reward good. And Paul's writing that in the context of um, Rome, you know, which um, is obviously in many ways hostile to Christians. And it's a biblical function right. that they feel. Right. Yeah. Yeah, even if they don't, even if they don't recognize it, they, right. they are still fulfilling that. Function. I mean, it goes back to which one are you talking to? Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the laws that are on the books. You don't kill somebody, you know. And then again, if I kick the plan off the side here, I'm not going to jail for that. And thankfully, so. Question for Brian, um, and this uh, this this is very much sprung on him. But this was a question that I was um, thinking about as he was preaching on on the church's bibliology. But you know, theologians throughout history have recognized. Um, that God's revealed himself in two books, okay, the book of nature and the book of scripture. Um, you know, think about the heavens declare the glory of God. Um, you know, day to day he communicates knowledge. Um, and then obviously in Romans chapter 1, you know, what is evident about God was, was, was made clear to them, right? And then and, 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 and he uses that to say that people are condemned by that. So, um, and as we think about, you know, the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture, uh, t try to work out for us a little bit what, um, let me see if I can find my question here, what's the relationship between the doctrine of, the su of sufficiency and the doctrine of general and special revelation? 
So to put it simply, what is general revelation sufficient for, and what is special revelation sufficient for? So general revelation is sufficient for knowing that there is a God. Yeah. Special revelation is sufficient for knowing how to be made right with that God through Christ. Yeah. So Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. Yes, all Every, things everything that we need. Yes, yeah, that's right. And and Second Peter as well. Um, there at the beginning. So uh, chapter one. So yeah, general revelation. But understanding this, that you you cannot separate. God in either one of those. He, there is not a separate God of general revelation and his attributes or his essence changes in special revelation. All of his revelation is meant to lead to redeeming revelation. That's right. Redemptive revelation, specific or special revelation as we have it here, is simply the codifying and the writing down uh, from God's mind to us all that is necessary and all that we need to know. Yeah. Yeah, I think just to that point, um, we, we recognize that, you know, God does not lie. Um, therefore, what he reveals is true. So, you know, efforts to, I think, pit general and special revelation against themselves um, are obviously um, a foolish thing to do because all of it's revealed, you know, authoritatively even from God imperfectly. And so there, there should, of course, be harmony. Now, what we have explicitly laid out in special revelation um, and in many cases is more clear um, than what we might would find in general revelation. But that doesn't negate the fact that the Lord does communicate um, generally. Well, and, it, and if the goal of all things is to bring glory to God, Psalm 19 would be a very clear uh, indication that general revelation has a purpose. Um, just because we're people of the book doesn't mean that we, you know, uh, treat lightly general revelation because the heavens do declare the glory of God. And we can enjoy that and affirm that and appreciate that and celebrate that, and we should. And perhaps that's part of the problem that we're in with all of the worship of the environment nowadays is that we have not, as Christians, done a good job in our view of general revelation and promoting that. That's good. Anything you want to add to that? You, you referenced, I mean, spot on, Psalm 19. Yeah. And you get into that section where it goes to special revelation, the law of the Lord. What's it do? Restoring the soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, enduring forever, true. And you see kind of a distinction, even the way that it lays it out there, one leading kind of to the, to the other direction, just... And I would say a very important distinction between um, general revelation and um, a special revelation is that if you think about it, general revelation is a tool of God to actually condemn humanity. Mm -hmm. General revelation, we, we, know, we acknowledge it as we see it, but also there, humanity, unregenerate humanity is going to be condemned because... Right? Yeah. Romans 1, 18. Right. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them and God made it evident to them. For the creation, for since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. 
and then he goes on to do the Thank you. Um, a kind of a pastoral question came in from the crowd. Um, a, a matter of sensitivity, obviously, but can someone speak to the tragedy that so many Christians um, who have a biblical worldview of man, that so they have it until one of their children comes out as homosexual? And I guess the question is then um, inferring that maybe that biblical worldview of, of man begins to crumble um, under the, the reality of that challenge. Um, would, would one of y'all like to speak to that and, and help us think through that pastorally? Well, it's, it's sadly it's common, and I don't know of any church that has not gone through, through that. And uh, to the parent or parents that are going through that, we have to be reminded uh, that, um, that God is not insensitive or uncaring. Um, we know that, like all sin, uh, homosexual, homosexuality is, is that. It's part of the fallen uh, nature. And uh, parents are to be reminded that as God is sovereign, they need to stick to their guns and stick to the scriptures. Um, as hard as it may be to, um, to, to accept the division that will come when parents or, or said, you know, parent um, stands upon the truth of the word of God. But that's the best thing for their child. Um, obviously, there's no, we, we would uh, counsel against um, excommunicating or things like that. But ultimately, I think the best thing for that, uh, uh, that child is to know that mom and dad are immovable based on the inerrant word of God. And that it is God whom they fear offending more than their child. Easier said than done. But ultimately... The, the word of God is, wins. I mean, it, got, it kind of goes back again, I think, in Psalm, after Psalm, pleading, crying of the situation that you're going through. But again, yesterday, unite my heart to fear your name and having a fear of God that is greater than a fear of my child not liking me. Because, and then again, having that biblical understanding that you guys have helped develop of going... I'm actually loving my child by not capitulating to them so that they would follow this path that, again, is going to lead to absolute destruction. And even if you don't believe that biblically, look statistically about where that's going to lead. This is not for your good, and it's definitely not for God's glory. And, but, it, yeah, I mean, I think that's spot on to the point, and you see that over and over again, that the view hold, your view on those th sin holds tell that one that's closest to you is impacted, and, and again, that's why it, and a, and the foundations of, that we're talking about within a biblical church are important so that that's established long before that happens and that you're built in a, on a solid space long before that happens. So. Yeah, I agree with uh, what both these guys are saying. Um, this comes back to encouraging a parent in that situation God's word is going to be the authority. It's going to be your anchor. We can't let experience or things move us away from that. Um, but yet, still offer them hope. Because we know in Scripture, even from 1 Corinthians, that those that move even into those kind of sins were saved, 
we're redeemed from that. So to give them the hope of you keep praying, you keep loving them, but loving them with the truth. I mean, that's the whole part of what uh, these men have been saying last night today uh, with Pastor Francisco and about gender and, and, you know, folks moving around on those things. Um, you know, it's not, it's not loving to lie. You know, it's not loving to lie to someone. Um, so we can't all of a sudden say, well, God's okay with this. But, but still love them enough to tell them the truth and offer them the hope of redemption and salvation that's in Christ. Yeah, I think there's an interesting parallel just as we were talking about coercion from the state. Kind of look at that as coercion from above being pushed down upon Christians to compromise the truth and to maybe confess a lie or to do something that God um, has commanded them not to do. So you can view that as kind of coercion from above. And I think uh, many Christians are in situations, and this can be to this question about children who, you know, come out as homosexual or whatever else, and just the pressure that arises from beneath, the emotional pressure that arises from beneath. Well, if you think about it, it's kind of aiming at the same thing. Um, it's aiming at you um, compromising or, or you uh, uh, essentially being called to in that moment to accept something that's, that's not true. So, um, you know, just, just I think that I guess what I'm trying to point out is that really in every direction we look, whether it's from external forces pressing down on us, there's, there's temptation for Christians to compromise. And sometimes those temptations are extremely personal and um, within our own homes, with our own families, and they rise up from beneath. And yet they're calling us to the same kind of disobedience. Um, so maybe just thinking of it in that terms might help a Christian who's genuinely struggling or faltering with this, um, that really what, you know, the temptation in that moment is for you to, to compromise in a very similar way that, that even those throughout church history have been deeply persecuted and I think the, for their faith. I mean, maybe to push that a little bit further is that in, in what you see kind of around us is, again, the church that commends, oh, that you have this temptation but you're not acting on it and that everything's okay then. I mean, again, if, if somebody comes to me and goes, I'm lusting after my neighbor's wife next door, I'm not going to say, oh, it's great that you haven't acted on that. And it, I mean, in a sense, I get that. But in a sense, you're not dealing with the heart of the issue that what, what your temptation is, what your heart is lusting after to identify this, what this is, as opposed to just going, well, it's sort of all okay just because you're not acting upon it. And as long as you don't act upon it, then we'll let you just kind of go on, you know. And again, dealing, shepherding people's hearts in that sort of a way. It seems to be ignored in, in a lot of places. Absolutely. Another um, question related to matters pastoral. We live in a digital age, obviously, and unless we think that it's just young people and their Snapchats and their Snapchat, I don't even know if it's a thing anymore, it may not be, but TikTok or, or Twitter or X, whatever, it's hard to keep up with all the different platforms out there. Unless we think that that's only a young person struggle, I think we need to also recognize that there's probably many um, older individuals in our churches who are uh, maybe just as addicted to Facebook or other types of social media that might be uh, more appropriate for that, for that age group. Um, so with more and more people within our churches forming these digital networks and communities on these various platforms, what challenges does this pose for the local church? What challenges does this pose for the local church? I'm going to start by handing the microphone to you because Bobby's we talked about this in the... Because Bobby's on all the platforms. You can find him there. Tell us, tell us your Twitter handle. 
Um, and then maybe a follow-up question, you know, there's also, in, not in our circles, but there are digital churches out there. They meet online. You know, the biggest churches in the world are probably meeting, you know, digitally, whatever that means. Um, and I think that that's, that's another part of this, which sure. is interesting. Go ahead, Bobby. Well, that's not a church. Correct. Thank you. So you. Thank you for answering that part first. That's um, good. Piercing clarity from Bobby over okay. there. I'm a pretty simple guy, so I don't have a lot of... Uh, I'm not I'm not very social, technology savvy. I don't have Facebook. I don't have Instagram. I don't have Twitter. I don't, well, I do have Twitter, but I don't know how to get back to my account. So... Um, <laughs> I signed up one day, and then I don't, I don't remember how I did it. So, um, But here's what I would say to all that. All those obviously can be good tools that can be used for the glory of God, uh, can be used in spreading the gospel. But here's what I would just encourage everyone. As you spend time on all those things and even getting involved in theological spats and discussions and disputes and, and variety of things that happen uh, on social media. I guess my lovingly pastoral advice would be spend a lot more time in God's Word. Spend a lot more time with the people in your church. Um, people you can know, people you can touch, people you can talk to people who can talk to you and hold you accountable. Um, it is always easier to say things when I know I don't have to be really held accountable for it. Um, I, mean, I mean, I might could threaten to beat Eric up online, you know, but would I do that in person? Probably, but I, I mean... Uh, uh, but that's just my... Thing. I was just talking to a young man the other day. He was involved, just listening to all these podcasts, going on this, going on that. And I said, that's one of my, how many hours a week do you do all these things? And my suggestion to him was, I said, okay, you take however much time you spend on all these things and just say, I want to make sure that 75, 80% of that time I'm going to be in God's word or with God's people involved in the things going on in my church. And then whatever you have left, involve yourself in that. Um, I, think part of the, I think one of the dangers that we're having with all the social media is there's a lot of influences that are coming in, obviously on our people, uh, on, on us as well. Um, but I would just say, again, a part of the defense of that is Spend more time, spend more time, obviously in God's word yourself, spend more time, go back and listen to the sermon that your pastor preached on Sunday. Think back through what you heard in Sunday school. Think back through what you heard on Wednesday. There are a lot of things that are being presented to you from your church that the elders and the pastor teachers are thinking through and putting together because they know more where you are. I mean, James White doesn't know where you are. John MacArthur doesn't know where you are. These guys don't they don't they don't know anything about you. You know. Now they help us. I listen to these guys, so I'm not, you know, but 
just, just know the people who are there trying to love you and care for you and shepherd you and feed you and are trying to bring the body of Christ there in a one heart and a one mind and a focus, I would just encourage you to spend more time with that and then you know, whatever you have left over after that then pour it into those other things as well. So that's my soapbox. As you're saying that, it just made me think again like of the book of Philippians in where a church was fairly solid and what's he dealing with? Unity and, and calling them to be self-sacrificial. And, and again, those are things that are practical that don't actually seem to take place online so much. And it's more difficult to do that within the local congregation. But going back to kind of some of the things that we talked about yesterday, some of the reasons that people go that direction is because maybe they don't feel I have anybody in the local church to talk to. And you, you need to, you know, and, and part of that may be because they're somewhat unsure of the things that they're so confident about online that am I as confident about sitting down across from somebody talking to that? How are they going to react? But again, that's what's supposed to take place in the local church. I mean, if, if I hear somebody's wacky point of view about something, I mean, I, I hope I'm going to express a gentleness about that and, and ask questions and, and try to understand that as opposed to what you would get on social media that I'm going to just blast you and make you feel like the lowest person on earth. Yeah, one, one observation that, you know, we've seen um, is, and I think one of the dangers is, you know, the, the Lord has given the elders of the church the responsibility to shepherd the flock, obviously, and the flock has been given, a, you know, a call to, to, to submit to the loving care of the elders. And um, I, I think one danger with social media, particularly those who are really committed and really involved, is they almost have a, a community that backs them up such that if they were to go sideways with um, their church or with their elders, that um, they, they have a place to retreat to. Um, and and that, I think that just puts them whoever, who, in, in a very precarious situation um, because the, the way that you know, the, the church is supposed to function to help correct and help disciple and help bring along, um, there are no outs, so to speak. There are no ways you can retreat and say, okay, I'll forget y'all, I'm just going to, dig in deeper to my online community. I think that's a real danger and a real temptation. Um, for but there is who, no online church. Yeah, there is no online church. And, 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 and even though someone may be a pastor and may be online and you learn from them, they, they are not entrusted to shepherd you. And if, if that's your church, you're not part of a church. You're not part of a church. That's exactly right. So, so the importance of the local church, um, I think, um, is highlighted by this question. And, you know, digital stuff might help in some small measure, but um, when it becomes, a, you know, a substitute for the local church, we have a whole host of problems, I think. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Any other questions? I would just say that as much as the pressure coming from outside in from social media, I think one of the real dangers that I've seen recently uh, is the pressure that comes from the inside to go out and that is pride and so many of these um, people who find voices and great followings on social media um, it's really sad because you see pride manifesting itself and i i i say it to um, our assistant pastor all the time Who's, who's young, he's in seminary, he's doing, he's growing, he's, he's just such a blessing. 
but uh, something I learned from John MacArthur a long time ago, time and truth go hand in hand. And you watch some of these social media sensations that are the, all the rage and everybody's behind this, this issue and that issue and this person and that person. Fine. Show me where they are in five years. Because I think we've seen that pride so destructive. We've seen a more rapid advance of failures and falls among Christian celebrities, so to speak, in the social media age than we ever did before. And that's because there is a great temptation and pressure from the inside to be seen and heard. I think it's as great and as dangerous as the pressure from outside in. I think if you go back to that initial question about the mission of the church, I think this is one of those pressures or one of those um, temptations um, that, that, you know, Christians want to feel like they're involved in something meaningful. A lot of Christians are looking for a fight, and, and, and they only feel like they're actually making a difference if they're engaged in some kind of a, a, a fight. And I think, I think that's why so many Christians find such a comfortable home within the culture wars of our day, because um, they feel like there's significance for themselves there. Um, that's really it. And, they, and then they begin to confuse what is the mission of their personal calling as a disciple of Christ, but what is the mission of the church by, by you know, maybe looking at the different fruits of what um, the mission of the church is, like a transformed society. That's a, I'd say that's a good thing, and we should celebrate that, and we should praise the Lord when we see it, but that's a fruit of the gospel advancing. And to take that fruit and to focus on it as though it's the ultimate end, I think, is a way to confuse the mission, or to feel like I have to be in some kind of fight all the time, contending for the truth in this really, you know, militant kind of way, um, that can also be a, a you know, a confusion on, on what the mission of the church really is. Even though there's time, we all know there's, there's, there's time that, that we may be called to engage in that way. Um, so it's not a never, don't do it, but some people seem just to feed on it. Like they're always wanting to, to be involved. There's in a difference way. in contending and being contentious. Yeah. And I think we need to define that in our own minds. That's, that's helpful. Piercing. Just thinking, I mean, through all this, again, it's, it's not like if, if you have the opportunity to, to express truth and you've been given a platform, take it, right? I mean, if we believe in providence and God's sovereign over all things, if, if you have an opportunity to serve in some way, take it. But, but again, thinking back to where is the battle, I think the battle's a lot for hearts, and, and we're thinking the battle's for something else, but in institutions in some way. And, and, but that's only going to change, like we talked about, if hearts have changed. And to be thinking on that individual level, I mean, that, I, I'm not preaching to Texas Tech on Sunday. I'm, I'm preaching to hearts that, that one, are converted, and they need to be encouraged, and they need to be, you know, we, we all need to be reminded. So much of what we've, we've talked about, I don't think is anything anybody went, oh, came in and said, oh, I don't believe that at all. You know, but again, it was convicting, and it was reminding, and it was reorienting us. But then also that unbelievers come, and that they hear the truth for the first time, and you're wanting to see hearts changed. And so that there is, in that sense, I think all of us would agree, there's this battle that goes on. And, and, and are we as eager about that battle to preach the gospel to hearts and to call them to repent and call them to trust Jesus and be saved? Well, that's not as flashy because it, you know, again, that, that's on an individual basis. But that's, again, not looking at it like you guys have laid it out. I mean, that, that's, that's a person made in the image of God. And the solution's 
change their heart, change their life, change their destiny as a result. Question for Francisco on anthropology. Okay, this is from one of the um, uh, individuals in our crowd today. Um, will we, let me see what the question says here. Do you believe that man will reproduce in heaven? Uh, no, because there's no marriage in heaven. Okay. And um, when God in uh, Genesis 2.18 said, it's not good that man should be alone. Mm -hmm. Therefore, he created a help me suitable for him. There's no need of that. Yeah. In, uh, in heaven, everything, our Savior is going to be everything that we can possibly ever think of needing. So, nope. Nope. Good. I like it. Another question, um, kind of related to some of these issues, but a little bit of a different spin. Biblical view of military service. Okay, I don't, have any of y'all served in, in, in any kind of military capacity other than the Lord's Army? No? Okay. Um, so, biblical view of military service in an age of perpetual war and often unjustified conflict. That's a tough one. <clears throat> Well, without delving into just war theory, you have to identify if it's conflict is unjust. So as a Christian, you need to, you need to determine 100%. that. 100%. Yeah. Um, it is unjust not to defend yourself. Um, again, it's, it's, it's just the, 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 the whole situation. Again, when it comes to just war theory, I mean, there's books and books and dissertations and dissertations written uh, uh, upon it. So I would think it, the, the, the definition must be, is it just? Right? It is not just to let, uh, let, let, let your children be slaughtered. It's not just. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he didn't mean, go ahead, let them do that. God is just, and we are created in his image. Uh, when mankind is being massacred, something needs to be done. Um, again, uh, just war theory de uh, de demands that you do your very best in warfare to try to mitigate the death of, of innocents or not combatants. Uh, that, that's part of what uh, just war, for lack of a better term, it, uh, it implies. But uh, I think, uh, again, going back to, is it, is it just? I think it's important. And I don't think anybody in the military, <clears throat> we have, uh, we have uh, two sons that are uh, Navy, one son that's in the army, and one, we wouldn't bat an eye if they, at the call of their nation, went to go fight and, de and defend the nation, and the nation that is actually even lost in unrighteousness, but still. They didn't have any qualms in joining. Um, they just knew that uh, this is where we live. Uh, this, uh, the nation has given uh, uh, everything uh, to us. And again, even though we're not, <clears throat> the, the, our, as a nation, we have much to be desired when it comes to knowing what's right and wrong and doing uh, things. I mean, there's a lot of evil that this nation perpetrates. But when it comes to defending, ultimately, I think a soldier has to um, be okay with the, the fact that if I'm here to defend Again, there's no such thing as an innocent person, right? Because we all are, are, uh, possess a, a sinful nature. But when there's clearly right and wrong, that's part of being made in the image of God. We know what is right and what is wrong, and we stand for what is right. Sometimes m military action is necessary to uphold righteousness. But again, it's, uh, uh, 
I'm having, I'm getting tongue-tied because you think it's like, but you're not even righteous as a nation. But you see, there's that dilemma, and that's why I would say that it'd be long. It's 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 a personal matter. I wouldn't uh, uh, object to anybody saying I have a personal conviction that I I'm not going to bear arms. I'm not going to go to war. I, I understand that, but at the same time, I think for those who are serving in the military and do go fight on behalf of the nation, I don't think it's a sin, for one, and I don't think they should be uh, um, uh, confined by uh, any, anything that would inform their conscience that they are sinning. Yeah, I think that was what I wanted to point out, was this is a conscience issue, I think, largely, and you might have two well-intentioned Christians looking at um, the same war, and one of them looking at that and saying, personally, I, I see the arguments, and I, I can, in my mind, my conscience is clear to conclude that this is a just war, and I can give myself to participate in this in this endeavor. Whereas another Christian could look at this and say, um, this is an unjust war, and I'm not going to be coerced to go engage in an unjust war. And, 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 and it's these issues are so complex that I think that the church does need to be able to support and give room for people to operate with biblically informed consciences on these issues, even though they might disagree. And I would say, too, just from lesson from history, if you talk to Vietnam veterans, and there were some atrocious things that happened, in Vietnam, and many of them were perpetrated by even by American forces and, and allied forces. But there were some who said, we're here, we understand, but there were some things that they absolutely refused to do. So even, even a soldier, even as a Christian, knowing right from wrong, even in the heat of battle, even in the heat of the war, there are some things that when you are commanded by your commanding officer to do, there are some things that you might have to say, no, sir. I'll be court-martialed, I'll be kicked out, but no way am I going to do that. You know, so even in war, we have the, 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 the ability to understand right from wrong. It's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And I, and I know of Vietnam veterans who got in a lot of trouble who said, no, we're not going to do that to the people. No, we're not going to do that with those villages. We're not going to do that. And they stand on principle, and I wouldn't be surprised, if, again, if these were Christian men. How did, did you just talk to your pastor? What's your motives for wanting to, to go into the military? Hopefully the pastor goes, you know, do you have the discernment for what the training you're going to receive that's not going to just be pick up a sword, it's going to be philosophical? And then, I mean, again, to, to think through what you're going to go through and what decisions you may have to make. I think about somebody in our church that, if I remember right, I think they chose to go to the Coast Guard. They wanted to serve. But they said, hey, the Coast Guard's probably not going to be called to go overseas. The boats aren't big enough, right? Or whatever. And, and I mean, I was like, well, that's a reasoned, rational response. Uh, I'm not going to have to deal with some of those issues, you know, in that regard. I mean, think through it and get help. And kind of tying that back to some of our previous conversations, you know, this, the civil realm, we may be called on to pick up the sword to advance civil ends. That, that could happen. I mean, that's, that happens all the time. But when it comes to the church... It's clear that there will never be a time that we are told to pick up the sword to advance the ends of the church. So that's, again, another, another area where I think some of these mission ideas um, become confused. Is that, um, I mean, Peter tried it to cut off the ear of the, what was the name of the slave? Um, anyways, Malchus, yeah. And, what, and he was rebuked by that, you know. And... Um, and so just, uh, again, I think that as we think through these really complex issues, the ability to make the right distinctions, I think, really does matter to clarify 
um, how to walk faithfully in the world. Um, maybe I'll last question since we're out of time. Should Christians celebrate Reformation Day? I mean, I'm sorry, should Christians celebrate Halloween? I, we may have differences of opinions up here. Good. I think that's, I mean, it's a conscious issue. And it again, you know, are you going to celebrate demonic? Then don't do that. And, and, and look, I mean, I think our neighbors in our neighborhood, this is how pathetic we were as, I mean, as I am as a dad. I'm not going to say parents. I'll, I'll own this. But, you know, we, we didn't. We had a bowl of candy there. Somebody showed up. We could say hi and be hospitable, I guess, in some sort of a sense. But we would mostly just close the door. I think it was more because I was lazy <laughs> than anything else. And it was so bad that the neighbors would come over to our house and bring candy to our children as opposed to our children going to houses. They would knock on the door, and they would be like, oh, here's this for your kids. And it was like, yeah. I mean, I, that, that's, you know, again, if a, if a Christian wants to put on a costume that's appropriate and go, Walk the neighborhood. go yeah, beg for candy because they can't get it anywhere else, then whatever. Any hard line, no Halloweeners on stage? Not really. Okay. I will say that I think culture is changing. And I don't think that Halloween... Today is what Halloween was when I was a kid almost 40 years ago when I was the Lone Ranger and, you know, Bozo the Clown. Uh, some might still argue that I am the latter, but um, I, th I found it interesting on my Apple calendar this year for the first time, um, Day of the Dead was actually put on there. I cannot remove it. It is an Apple uh, thing. Um, and I do think that our culture is changing. And even when I go to the grocery store in Midland, there are Day of the Dead decorations. And I think we have morphed from the innocent fun of letting kids be kids and put on costumes and go get candy to we, Satan is, is, is a formidable foe and he is using what is innocent and he is so saturated people i mean my daughter who's in the room this morning we can't go in about 90 percent of the stores right now because it's not just you know a little ghost looking character saying boo it is graphic and so i'm curmudgeon enough to just say no i'm going to push back and the day after halloween dress up and run around the front yard all you want but I, I, it really bothers me that the, the morbid fascination with our culture and how that one day has been used to funnel so much of this in. And so do I have a problem with kids in costumes? Not at all. I think it's cute and adorable, and, and it's part of development as a child to pretend to play in healthy ways. Reformation Day, celebrate. We will. Well, on that note, Reformation With Day your is, robes. Yeah, is coming up in 10 days, so you can um, leave on that note. But let's give these guys a round of applause for making themselves uncomfortable and doing a good job answering our questions. And I'll pray for us, and then we can finish our time. Father, we're so thankful for today, and I'm grateful for these men on stage and the, the wisdom you've given them, um, the pastoral hearts you've given them, the sensitivity, Lord, to your word. 
and the de desire, Lord, to, to glorify you in all things. Um, we pray, God, that you would help us all, Lord, to, to learn by not just their example, but the example of many others who've gone before all of us. Father, to, to make good, helpful distinctions as we try to live faithfully in the world that you've given us. So as matters pertaining to the church, Lord, we pray that um, you would help us all to be so committed, Lord, to, to your local church that um, as we navigate these hard questions about life, Lord, that the first person that comes to our mind that we would think of whenever we have questions about these hard things is whether it be a faithful member in the church or maybe an elder of, of the church that we're a part of. So help us, Lord, to take our membership with the body that seriously that, um, Lord, we would know where to look for wisdom and help in a time of need, which ultimately, Lord, is found in your word. Thank you, God, for this time. In Christ's name, amen.